0: That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome
1: to Talking Pieces, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day for the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world. Subscribe to Talking Business from my website leongetler.com. I am Leon Getler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 36 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, October the 6th. First, I'll be talking to X2M CEO Mohan Jesidarsson. X2M has partnered with Resi Ventures to embark on a bold 1,000 home project in Echuca, Victoria, the redefined smart community and energy design. X2M will also work with RACV for clean energy solutions. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the next week. But first, let's talk to Mohan Jesidisan. Well, Mohan, tell me, what exactly is a smart community grid? A smart
2: community grid is a, a subdivision with 100, 200, 300, 2000 households that all have solar that then share their excess solar, the solar that they have not consumed, into a community battery for which they get a credit for, which is used to support any local community buildings, et cetera, but one where they can also draw energy from that community battery for when the sun's not shining and and a community battery that can buy from the grid when prices are most favorable. And so if you look at solar today, you'll have, you know, about 30% of households have solar. You have free energy for a period of time. Any excess, you try and put it into the grid if you can accommodate it. That when you need, when it's need power and the sun's not shining, then you have to buy the grid and often you have to buy that at peak, peak tariffs. And what we do is provide a solution that gives householders, uh, you know, a 40 to 50 percent reduction in energy, much more efficient use of renewables and, uh, and, and, and the ability to you know, support the environment and reduce carbon emissions.
1: So how long has X2M
2: been doing this for? So we did our first microgrids about three years ago, which were trials and proof of concepts. We won last year uh, the first mandate issued by the Taiwanese government for the, for a smart building, and Taiwan is driving down the path of net zero very, very hard. Uh, and we brought that into the Australian marketplace. We're an Australian company here, building t- uh, you know great technology in Mount Waverley, uh, and uh, and we, our first foray delivered us uh, ventures as a customer, and, and we've got a good pipeline we're building behind it. How will this help achieve net zero targets? Well, you're, you're doing a whole bunch of things. One is you're, uh, you're using more re- renewables. Two, you're reducing overall energy consumption. So our platform, uh, you know, we have a little hub that goes into each home and it helps you manage your high energy use appliances like air conditioning, uh, heating, so overall energy consumption you're using more renewables you're drawing less from the grid you're being uh, and, and and you're reducing carbon uh, your carbon footprint
1: you you actually had agreements uh, with rsi and RA, racv is that correct
2: yeah so uh, our Resi ventures they're our customer and and we're deploying a a solution to them and and, uh, and uh, racv you know provides solar panels and and, uh, and, and of course they're a you know, good partner
1: so Resi Ventures would be fantastic for the entire residential market, wouldn't it? Look,
2: these, these guys, you know, are leading the field in this uh, in, in, in this in this thinking and and thinking much more broader than buying a piece of land and cutting it up and selling it. And, and they're thinking about the environment. They're thinking about community. They're thinking about sustainability. And and in addition to that, they they actually also get an income stream. You know, once they've sold
1: pieces of land. Well, the issue though too. With your company, is you would have to actually target discrete communities, wouldn't you?
2: Well, you don't have to. So, so clearly, greenfield discrete communities, you know, uh, are tailor made for this uh, for this solution. You, you know, if you go to medium density housing, uh, if you go to uh, caravan parks, if you go to retirement villages, uh, you, you know, there's a large base there, there to tap. And indeed, if you're talking about discrete communities, we're we're expecting. You know, seven to eight hundred thousand households in the next three years to be adding solar uh, in in Australia.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. And you you've targeted at
2: Chuka, Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so uh, uh, Resi have got a new subdivision in uh, in in, 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 in Echuca, and and we're and we're starting there. And 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 of course, it's a solution that, that is transportable anywhere in Australia or or, or indeed like...
1: So how have you found the response from consumers towards this?
2: Look, uh, the uh, response is, is is overwhelmingly positive. You, you, you know, everyone wants it. You'd have to be living under a rock to to not to realize the uh, the challenges we have today in terms of energy and availability of it, the pricing of it, uh, and 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 of course all the environmental debate and conversations that's been uh, that's been going on. So, you, you you're with with smart solutions that are affordable. Uh, you're, you're pushing against an open door, Leo.
1: I would imagine it would be particularly pertinent now, with times of high energy prices, just climbing.
2: Exactly. Look, our, our timing to launch into this market is, uh, you know, has, has been has been great, and and, and we have a, we have good interest in, in what we're doing.
1: Well, it's been quite fortuitous. So you, you must have had a crystal
2: ball to be able to see it. <laughs> But look, no, we, we, we didn't have a crystal ball, and, and, and you know what commerce is like, you, you know, you, fund, you go to fundamental and, and, and the fundamentals here are governments all around the world are encouraging reduction in carbon, there are commitments being made towards uh, net zero, the population out there, now young and old, are demanding better environmentally friendly solutions out there, and are prepared to support that, and, and, and the last election was probably a very good example. Of
1: that. What's interesting, though, too, is uh, you're taking this global. I mean, you, you've been to ta- Taiwan.
2: Yeah, so actually, we've, we've started in in APAC. Our business is digitising ut- utilities in the Asia Pacific region. We have, you know, good, opera, strong, substantial operations in South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Beijing, uh, and, and Australia has been a bit slower over the last decade in in, in the migration to internet-based digital. And, uh, and, 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 of course, uh, adoption rates are now growing in this country. And, uh, and uh, you know, we always want to deploy our technology in, in a home base.
1: Now, how how long did it take you to develop the technology for this?
2: The, this technology has been built over about a decade. Uh, the company, uh, yeah, so, and and because it spreads the full gambit from, from uh, water management, leak detection, gas uh, management and, and monitoring to... to now the broader energy solution so uh, you know we do more than uh, than uh, smart communities and so it's a platform that's been built over a decade it's uh, backed by a very good portfolio of patents and, uh, and it's a company that's uh, you know performing really well in, in the APEC region. So is that is that all proprietary technology? Yes it is so uh, yeah, so we, we we have a a block of five patents, uh, about uh, 30 registered, in, in, in a number of markets from the US into uh, in, 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 into APAC and, and indeed Australia and New Zealand, and, and and one that's you know beautifully differentiated in the in the utility space.
1: Okay, are you looking at the US market as well and the European market?
2: Look, we are, our company is, is laser-like focused Leon, in terms of what we do, and and that allows us to execute really really well. So at this point in time, our focus is on the APEC region. We have an open mind to the US and Europe, but we don't expect to move into those markets you know, in the next couple of years.
1: Okay, but uh, certainly, uh, they would be open for you. Yes, they would. Yeah, our, our,
2: our priority, however, is is Australia and and the and the broader APAC uh, region. We've you know we've, we've made it an art form to understand uh, the region. We you know we're a software company, so we don't have a lot of staff. We have about 51 uh 51 employees we speak 16 languages you know all the way from from hindi to south korean to cantonese to mandarin sri lankan Uh, and uh, and and uh, and it's a very big market it's apex the largest population culture in the world it's the fastest growing Uh, it's urbanizing it's got healthy balance sheets the governments have got healthy balance sheets they're investing in infrastructure which includes technology so uh, there's a lot to be had in the region
1: so uh, are you constantly updating your technology? Do you have an R&D team working on it? Yes, we have an
2: R&D team. We have uh, about a dozen and a half uh, professionals in that space. And, uh, yes, and, and, of course, each month there's a new version released that's been put out. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, this, this is all about data collection, analytics, controlling devices, controlling machines. And uh, and it's a space that's growing exponentially, Leon. So, you know, you're always enhancing your technology.
1: Well... Mohan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. A great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Good, good, good to
3: talk to you too, and all the very best. Now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James.
1: Well, Craig, how will the market be on the week starting October the 9th?
3: Well, we're going to see a fair bit of information over the, the week, particularly in terms of the United States, probably not so much in terms of top-tier economic data coming out from, from Australia. On uh, Tuesday, we've got the National Australia Bank Business Survey We've got uh, consumer confidence readings also on that day. Two measures, uh, a monthly measure and also the normal weekly measure. We've got Combank Household Spending Insights report on, on Wednesday. That's drawn from our credit and debit card transaction data at Commonwealth Bank. And also on Wednesday is a survey of business turnover from the Bureau of Statistics. There's also... The Bureau of Statistics uh, provides weekly payrolls uh, data on on Thursday, which is a bit of a more timely gauge on the job market. It hasn't been overly insightful as yet, but certainly you know, sort of um it's uh, one of the indicators. that that economists will dissect to be able to see if they can get any inklings on that. And then on Friday, we've got overseas arrivals and departures. Basically, yes, the readings for August, but there will be a flash reading for for September, which will get up to date, you know, indications about uh, the comings and goings by Australians and, and tourists, as well as migration data in there as well. So it's a solid batch of economic indicators, but really not too much in terms of top shelf information. Probably it's going to be more insightful looking at uh, the United States. Over the coming week, we've got minutes of the last Federal Reserve meeting happening on Wednesday. We've got producer prices happening also on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we've got figures on consumer prices We've also got inflation readings coming out from China and as well as um, international trade. Um, I think probably one of the highlights has got to be not really strictly in terms of economic data, it's the fact that um, we'll get the early uh, reports of companies for the third quarter in the United States. Uh, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, JP Morgan Chase, PNC, and United Health on Friday will provide their latest um, earnings and financial sort of figures. And I think that's really what the markets are waiting on at the moment, wanting to to see just how a, a companies are doing. If a companies are doing a sort of fine at the moment, and they're restraining inflationary pressures and profitability is rising. We may see some fundamental support coming through for for share markets, which have had a tough time of late. The last quarter was particularly bad, wasn't it? Yeah, no, we've seen um, a fair bit of weakness in terms of global share markets. Really, I suppose you've got to go back to the start of August. And I think what we're seeing is a bit of a dance at the moment between the share market and also the, the bond market. I think the expectation in the bond market or the interest rate markets is that inflation and interest rates are probably going to stay higher for for longer. and We're seeing that factored into the longer term yields, uh, 10-year bond yields and the like. So 10-year bond yields have been accelerating, not just in, in, in their ordinary capacity, but you know, so certainly against the two-year yields. And of course, with those bond yields going up, we're, what we're seeing is share markets uh, going down. So there is this expectation that in, interest rates are going to be remain high. That means what we're going to see is uh, concerns about inflation continuing. And as a result, that's being factored into the bond market, putting you of know, depressing impact in terms of the share market. So what we really want to see is probably a little bit more information from, from companies just to be able to determine whether the sell-off in the share market is justified or not, or whether we're just jumping at shadows. The
1: bond yields are interesting because they're saying inflation will be around for quite some time.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, yes, to try and do um, work out what's happening in terms of the bond market. We're seeing fairly seasoned uh, veterans of a financial market scratching their heads and saying yes to what's going on. I think what we're going to see is um, at the the policy level by, by central banks, we're not going to see too much in terms of uh, movements. So we're going to see interest rates held fairly stable you know, sort of, for, for the things like the cash rate, the federal funds rate and, and the like. But where we're seeing you know, correction, where we're seeing the movement is the The fact that uh, a normalization of the yield curve if you like what's normal is to basically have higher longer term rates than short term rates and i think that's what we're seeing we're seeing that correction up to a more normal yield curve and once we do get that normalization in terms of the yield curve i think then we're going to see yes there's a bit more settling down of some of the nerves in the financial markets and then we may have scope for for share markets to, to rise but We're calling it the dance of 2023, uh, the dance between your sort of bond yields and also the share market prices.
1: Also, the bond yields are telling us that, you know, the banks have ratcheted up interest rates and they've slowed spending and they've got inflation off the multi-decade highs. The difficulty is getting inflation down from three to four percent down to two to three percent.
3: Yeah, very much the the case. I think it's fairly easy when you lift interest rates decisively in a short period of time, very significant increases as well as over um, a short space of time. What we're seeing is uh, the, the reaction yesterday, to that yesterday. And so we, we had inflation in a lot of countries yesterday at uh, multi decade uh, highs, six, seven, eight, even 10%, yes, in some, some cases. Certainly, you ratchet up interest rates, things slow down yesterday quite quickly. And we have seen goods price inflation come down significantly right the way across the the globe. What we're seeing a little bit of uh, dragging of the heels is in the services sector, things like restaurants, things like uh, cafes, uh, hairdressers and and the like. And uh, what we do need to see is that stabilisation happening in terms of the services prices, rather than, yes, in terms of good prices. Uh, and this is the hard part, yes, now, getting inflation down from that 3 to 4% area down to the 2 to 3% area where central banks want it. The
1: issue last week with the inflation figures was that uh, you had petrol prices going up
3: 9.1%. Yeah, it's um, one of those things that, yes, the central banks find it hard to react to because they just have no control over oil prices. If oil prices are rising, feeding through to... Petrol or gasoline, you sort of prices, that's a factor outside their control. So what central banks can influence is uh, supply and uh, de- demand or particularly demand you know, in the, uh, the uh, domestic economy. But uh, the, the complication that we have with petrol prices or gasoline prices if we're in the United States is that it feeds through to inflation expectations. So it bumps up the headline rate of inflation. And if the headline rate of inflation is hovering near 5%, then what consumers and businesses factor in is that inflation is 5%. So that's the the problem with the sort of petrol prices or gasoline prices. And really, OPEC and Russia are doing us no favours right the way across the, the globe in restraining the amount of supply of the oil on the market. And forcing up prices. So could that be a
1: transitory thing?
3: It could be a transitory thing. Certainly, if you've got you know, high oil prices and therefore high gasoline uh, prices, what you tend to see is uh, consumers saying, "Well, the, the the prices are just too high. You know, so what I'm going to do is restrict my amount of car usage. Uh, we're not going to go on that that big trip. You know, sort of over the weekend or on holidays, we're going to stay at home." And uh, what you do is you get demand responding to that those higher prices. And the, if we see a stabilisation of oil prices around about $85, $90 you know, so a barrel, eventually you know, so what we're going to see that is affecting the headline rate of inflation, pulling that down, and then hopefully pulling the core rate of inflation down and, and getting back into that fabled 2 to 3% target zone.
1: The other issue too is we've got all these dividends coming through. How do they rank compared to... Last year's set of dividends, are they higher?
3: Uh, no, what we're seeing is dividends being paid out by Australian companies uh, have been a little bit lower than 12 months ago. And, of course, every second company that reported their earnings in the recent earnings season said that they're working in a challenging environment. They're, at the same time that they say they're working in a challenging environment, they say that they're quite resilient. So, And that's why dividends continue to be paid. But, you know, it's just that, yes, they're not going seeing... A significant increase compared with uh, a year beforehand. So in the coming week, we've got 1.4 billion dollars in dividends to be paid out by ASX 200 companies, including Brambles, a bit over 300 million, South 32 around about 226 million, and Northern Star 178 million. Certainly, uh, the the previous week we saw something over yes you know, so the order of 11 to 12 billion dollars you know, so yes being paid out. So yes, you know, so it's a different sort of, sort of time. We're seeing dividends largely being paid out now. And then I suppose, you know, sort of what we're going to do is in the, the latter part of the, this year look at quarterly earnings updates from a number of um, companies, see how they're, they're tracking and uh, the share market investors will factor that in. So we are moving into, uh, I think, a more useful period for, for investors, particularly where over the, the coming week, we've got U.S. companies starting to come out with their quarterly you know, sort of, um, earnings for the figures. And then we'll get some sort of idea of how U.S. companies are faring. Uh, hopefully, we'll get same sort of quarterly updates from Australian companies. And once we get, I think, so, some facts and figures, then the... The share market investors have got something fundamental, something tangible, if you like, to to draw upon to determine, yes, you know, so whether they're going to hold on to their shares, uh, buy them or sell them, and to determine whether the economy
1: is actually recovering.
3: Yeah, my, my word, I, I think yes, you know, so this is the yes, you know, so the the major test yes, you know, so coming up over the next couple of weeks when U.S. companies are releasing their earnings. If we do find out that Australian com- uh, so U.S. companies are, are faring yes, you know, so quite well. Yes, you know, so the earnings are coming through and profits continue. then that will be factored in by the the share market investors. And we'll see a stabilisation of share market indexes around around the the globe. Um, I think we will see that confirmation coming through. And I think fundamentally that's because of the job market. We're seeing solid job markets in places like the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, here in Australia. And the fact that people are holding on to their jobs allows them to continue spending. It's tougher out there in terms of bending, your sort of a cost of living is rising. But if you've got a job and your wages, wages continue to be paid or you've had a wage increase certainly then you can continue to spend. And that's what we are seeing in many parts of the globe. That's helping businesses. And that's leading to a bit of a dichotomy. One of the indicators that's coming out in the coming week is the National Australia Bank Business Survey. If you look at business conditions, it's got a reading of plus 13. Normal is plus five, doing a whole lot better than that longer term average. But confidence, business confidence is only plus two. So businesses are wary at the moment. They say that they're doing well and profits are rising and sales are rising. But they're just worried about the future, particularly with interest rates staying at high levels and potentially yes, going yesterday even higher. And uh, that business survey in Australia is yes, probably one of the highlights, I think, that we've got in the coming week, together with the Combank Household Spending Insights, because that yes, it does provide a more tangible yeah, evidence about what's happening in terms of consumer spending.
1: Well, Craig, that's all really important. And thank you very much for your time.
3: Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Luis de Guindos has dismissed talk of
1: rate cuts by the European Central Bank as premature, warning that hurdles over the last mile of bringing inflation back to rate setters' 2% target will be tough to overcome. The Vice President of the ECB has, along with other members of the Bank's Government Council, been grappling with the sharpest rising prices in a generation. The surge in inflation has forced them to raise its deposit rates, an unprecedented 10 times in a row, to an all-time high of 4%. While price pressures are now at a two-year low, Mr de Guindos said the recent surge in oil prices to a 10-month high would make our task more difficult. We're on our way towards 2%, Mr de Guindos said. That's clear, but we must monitor that very closely as the last mile will not be easy. The elements that might torpedo the disinflation process are powerful. And Australia's central bank kept its key interest rate unchanged while retaining a tightening bias on Tuesday as new governor Michelle Bullock gauges the impact of 4 percentage points of hikes. The Reserve Bank held its cash rate at 4.1% for a fourth meeting in Sydney, as anticipated by both economists and money markets. The string of pauses suggests a surprise shift in economic data will be needed to prompt any action. And Australian home prices stayed strong in September, driven by soaring demand and outweighing the impact of the central bank's aggressive policy tightening campaign. Sydney prices, the national bellwether, advanced 1%, down slightly from the previous month, property consultancy CoreLogic Inc. said in a report on Monday. Adelaide led September's gains, climbing 1.7%. In the more expensive cities, Sydney and Melbourne, the broad middle of the market is recording the highest growth rate after previously being led by the upper quarter, logic said. Regional markets continue to lag capitals. The Reserve Bank has raised borrowing costs by 4 percentage points since May last year to take the cash rate to its highest level in over 11 years. The unexpected recovery in the property market is a potential worry for policymakers, as households, feeling wealthier, are more likely to spend adding to inflation pressures. National home prices on the average are likely to see an 8% gain this year, with those in Sydney probably increasing at a faster clip of 12%, and could could take levels to near or record highs, according to Shane Oliver, Chief Economist at AMP Limited. Our base case is that property prices will see a further rise of around 5% next year as interest rates start to fall, Oliver said. And investors have shown few signs of panic during a stock market slump that's pushed the S&P 500 index into its first losing quarter in a year. But beneath the surface, signs of stress are emerging that go far beyond the the just-averted US government shutdown. It's not the intensity that dropped its weighing on sentiment, but rather the fact that the big down days are getting more frequent and there's been a scarcity of large rebounds. Three of the six days when the S&P 500 lost more than 1% last quarter occurred since mid-September, and there were only two days when the index gained more than 1% that quarter. That down to up, up ratio of three is the highest since 1994, data compiled by Bloomberg Show. For those hoping for an imminent reprieve, options traders have a message, don't get too comfortable just yet. A gauge of expected price swings in the S&P 500 index over the next week is hovering above the expected volatility two months from now, the opposite of a normal pattern when risks are seen rising with time. It's easy to see why traders would be nervous heading into this week, with the spectre of a narrowly averted US government shutdown hovering over their heads. In addition, the yield on the 10-year Treasury note is hanging around its highest level in almost 16 years sapping the appeal of risky, riskier assets. Then there's a question of how far the Federal Reserve is willing to go to combat inflation, and a worsening worker strike only adds to the risk of wider price swings ahead. We just have a lot of questions that are on people's minds, said Brian Donlan, an equity derivative strategist at Stifel Necklace and Co. You've seen a bit more hedging, a bit more risk of a real vol spike. The past couple of days have seen their fair share of volatility in short-term options, which are more sensitive to such moves than longer dated contracts were quitted to erect. Data compiled by Citigroup Inc's Stuart Kaiser illustrates just how more sensitive, the v- VIX index is to short-term moves in the S&P 500 index and S&P 500's realised price swings and the volatility curve further out in time. An Australian construction sector, insolvencies have surged over the past three months as costs for everything from materials to insurance continue to blight the troubled $360 billion industry. According to the latest ASIC statistics, external administration appointments in the construction sector jumped to 660 in the new financial year to September 10, up 38% from 478 in the same 10-week period a year ago, and a 255% spike from 186 appointments in 2021. Construction administrations represented 33% 33% of the 2010 insolvency appointments ASIC recorded across all industry categories from July 1st to September 10 and were 140% higher than the next biggest category of accommodation food services, which knocked up 276 collapses. New South Wales is where builders are struggling the most, and the State accounts for 59% or 389 of the total number of construction collapses. While the data does not take into account the full September quarter, it shows a worrying sign that the weakness in the construction sector could push national insolvency figures across the board above last financial year's total of 7,942, which included 2,213 construction firm failures. Overall insolvency numbers in New South Wales jumped 37% to 944 at the start of the financial year, up from 690, while Queensland rose 30% to 325. Victoria was the only state to buck the trend, where company collapses declined 1.8% to 494. And market forces have failed to deliver accessible and affordable childcare, the consumer watchdog has found, revealing parents on the lowest incomes are paying the highest out-of-pocket costs. In a damning report, the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission has called for the Albanese government to review the childcare subsidy, including the lactivity test, which leaves poor families paying more for the same hours of care than richer households. The ACCC report has found that the average Australian family with two children under three is spending up to 16% of their household income on childcare, ranking Australia 26 out of 32 countries in the OECD. Crucially, the Foot report found that market dynamics encourage more supply in wealthier suburbs and major cities where parents and guardians generally have greater ability and willingness to pay. It comes to skyrocketing childcare costs are eating into expected savings from Labor's landmark subsidies and jeopardising one of, one of Anthony Albanese's key measures to ease cost of living pressures with parents reporting increases of up to $20 a day for care. The government passed laws for cheaper childcare last year, which the Prime Minister promised would leave more than 1 million families better off. In 2022, an Australian couple on average wages with two children spent 16% of their net household income on net childcare costs compared to the OECD average of 9%. ACCC Chair Gina Cass Lee said quality childcare was essential for Australian families with early childhood education helping children reach developmental outcomes while supporting families and guardians to work and study. From July 1st, the government increased the subsidy from 85% to 90% for families with a combined income of less than $80,000. This falls by 1% for each additional $5,000 of annual income, hitting zero at a combined income of $530,000. But parents across the country have received letters from childcare centres informing them that fees would rise, citing the rising cost of energy, wages and food. Furthermore, the ACCC report found childcare providers are more likely to establish centres in more affluent areas where they can increase profits, limiting access to poorer communities. An unseasonably warm and sunny weather has helped push coal power generation to a new low, further undermining the economics of ageing plants that are being forced to ramp down through the day to avoid losses, but are still needed to keep the lights on. New low points were also set for demand for electricity from the grid amid a rooftop solar output, adding to the pressures of baseload plant owners such as AGL Energy and Energy Australia and to the market operators' task to keep the grid stable. Coal power generation in the national electricity market sank to less than 7,440 megawatts at about 2 pm on Saturday carving about 95 megawatts from the previous record set in late October last year, according to Dylan McConnell, the renewable energy analyst at the University of New South Wales. Rooftop solar supplied 51% of total demand on the national electricity market at midday on Sunday, when the record was broken for minimal operational demand on the grid, the Australian energy market operator said. It noted fresh minimum demand levels were also set in Queensland, and South Australia, where rooftop solar met 99.7% of total electricity use from 1pm to 1.30pm. The records come after the closure of AGL's Liddell coal power plant in April and amid the ongoing outage at a unit at the Callo generator in Queensland which reduces the share of coal in the electricity fuel mix. And worker shortages in regional areas risk delays and budget blowouts in the push to turbocharge green energy projects, according to an analysis from Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. The value of infrastructure projects in the regions is now $216 billion, a near doubling since January 2022, according to the IPA, of which around 55% or $116 billion is allocated to energy projects, up, up, up from $45 billion in 2022. But delivering the pipeline of work, Will require a 150% increase in skilled workers in outer, in outer regional areas and a 30% increase in inner regional areas by the end of 2022, IPA chief executive Adrian Dyer said, set, setting up major challenges for policymakers and infrastructure providers. The energy transition forms the next big wave of Australia's pipeline and, and requires the delivery of more large-scale projects in remote and regional areas than ever before, Mr. Dwyer said. The analysis comes as infrastructure minister Catherine King pairs to axle-delay federal funding to dozens of projects due to $32.8 billion worth of budget blowouts. An independent audit of current commitments found no new projects could be afforded in the next 10 years without changes. The blowout represents a 41% rise in the $80 billion 10-year federal budget allocated to the Infrastructure Investment Program, which Ms King accused the Coalition of failing to properly fund. Just under half of infrastructure spending in Australia is allocated to projects in regional and remote areas. According to IPA Analysis: There are currently 483 projects valued at $673 billion in the pipeline, 253 in major cities worth $344 billion, 190 in regional Australia worth $216 billion, 27 in remote and very remote Australia worth $46 billion, 14 offshore projects valued at $66 billion. Pipeline is now more regional than urban on a per capita basis, the IPA analysis suggests, but the fact that 72% of Australia's ma- population lives in major cities has major implications for project delivery. And colleges that target international students will be banned from paying commissions to agents who facilitate poaching from universities and other colleges under reforms to limit widespread routing of the visa system. Education Minister Jason it says a raft of reforms are designed to stop shonks and dodgy operators trying to exploit students and make money out of it. The government will also monitor student attendance, introduce a fit and proper person test for college owners and prevent cross-ownership between colleges and education agents in an attempt to shut down exploitative and criminal practices. Mm-hmm. International students are back, but so are the shanks seeking to exploit them and undermine our international education system, Mr Clare said. The reforms come as the number of student visa holders hit an all-time high of 660,765 at the end of June. That figure was 203,000 more than at the beginning of the year. The changes have been triggered by reports of widespread abuse of the visa system. Thousands of newly arrived Indian students have been using loopholes in the system to abandon their courses at established universities to enrol at cheaper private colleges. Universities are reporting sharp increases in the number of Indian students who either arrive in Australia but never step foot in their institution or abandon their course shortly after. One university said about 500 of its expected 1,200 new enrolments from India for semester 2 last year either did not front up or jump ship in the first six months. Use of student visas as a backdoor to the job markers is also rife, with some colleges merely shop fronts with little or no teaching and administration facilities under changes student attendance will be monitored education agents have been actively poaching students in exchange for cash while colleges and universities offer generous discounts for students to jump ship the changes come ahead of the release of a long-awaited report into the immigration and visa system by former victoria police commissioner mm-hmm. christine nixon and the south african owners of country road group whose fashion brands include Country Road, Witchery and Mimco have unveiled plans to transform the business into Australia's most admired lifestyle brand house, investing up to $82 million to improve operations, open new stores and potentially expand overseas. Woolworths Holdings is now more heavily focused on its Country Road Group after selling the apartment store David Jones last year to private equity for around $100 million and is keen to expand the reach for its remaining fashion and apparel brands in Australia. This recently saw its Witchery, Politics, Trennery and Mimco brands as well as Country Road Kids and Country Road Home re-entered Maya while Country Road Group has also launched a wholesale model to broaden its product reach to more regional towns in Australia. Writing to Woolworths Holdings shareholders in the latest annual report, Chief Executive Roy Bakatini said Country Road Group would now play a bigger role within the South African company's performance and this would be back by fresh investment in its back office operations. And Labor is facing calls to cut the number of international students allowed to work in Australia for extended periods after graduation and back a change whereby only those earning more than $70,000 are allowed to access the more generous rules. Calling for better targeting of the migration system and an end to visas which push international students' low-skilled jobs like hospitality and retail, the Grattan Institute has proposed an overhaul to cut down on permanent temporary workers. In a new report, the Melbourne-based think tank warns many graduates struggle to find a job in their chosen professional field, while only about half own more than $53,300. Less than a third of temporary graduate visa holders transition to permanent residency in Australia, down from two-thirds in 2014 temporary graduate visa numbers are projected to hit 350,000 by 2030, up from 200,000 now. Grattan's Economic Policy Program Director Brendan Coates said about one in three international graduates take on further study after graduation. Those moves were offered to cheaper vocational courses and sometimes were motivated only by visa holders seeking to extend their stay in Australia. He said the current rules give international students false hope about gaining permanent residency and building their careers here. Grattan proposed shorter post-study work visas for international graduates with visa extensions for skill shortages and regional work scrapped. Only those earning more than $70,000 a year would have access to extensions. A new exceptionally talented graduate permanent visa should be offered to the brightest international students at graduation and a campaign designed to change employer attitudes about foreign graduates should be created. Public sector graduate program rules should be changed to allow international students to apply and temporary graduate visas limited to people under 35. Currently anyone under 50 can apply. Grattan also calls for separate permanent points tested visas for skilled independent state-nominated and regional visas to be replaced with a single points tested visa which targets younger, higher skilled workers. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Robert Wilkinson, the CEO of Cyber Marathon Solutions, about cybersecurity. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivery about China's economic and market challenges. For the most exclusive access to lead economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.